Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Today, we are going to talk about what connects us. This is important as so often it seems like we can speak with ease about all that disconnects us from one another, whether it's uh, politics, especially politics in today's world, uh, our religious traditions, to where we live, to how we think, to the color of our skin, to our sexual orientation. We as human beings have long known the power of tribe, and because of that, uh, we often, almost without thinking, see the world as us and them. But what if I told you that there's far more that connects us to one another than we might even realize? Like, what if we as human beings who are clumps of dirt with the breath of the divine in us, what if we are more alike than we are different? What if we truly share more in common than any of our stated differences? Today, in exploring this idea, I could not be more thrilled to introduce you to today's guest, my friend, Heather Nelson. Heather is the founding director of Kesed Wellness here in Denver, which she's going to share with us uh, more about that. And she's an explorer of connection. She's an entrepreneur. She's going to talk about something she's just launched. She's a licensed professional counselor. She is a captivating speaker, and I know that because I've had the pleasure of listening to her sermons. And so, Heather, welcome to the Changing Faith Podcast. Well, thank you so much. That's quite the introduction. Yes, well, yeah, I would say it's all true, which I guess is probably the most important part of any introduction. <laughs> I'm super um, excited to be here with you. Thank you. Yeah. Well, first off, um, just tell us a little bit about yourself and your story. Sure, absolutely. So I, um, I'm a licensed therapist, but I, I really got into that space. I went to seminary to study psychology. And so um, I am someone who's always been passionate about um, faith and also mental health. And um, two years ago, found myself with this idea called Kessid Wellness as I looked at just the landscape of our society and how people more than ever are becoming aware of our need for mental health and how mental health is really what it means to be human. And simultaneously, as I'm learning more about what I really believe in light of you know, where I came from in my um, perspective on faith. And, and evangelicalism is my mother tongue, as I call it. Yes. So that's the faith space uh, that is my heritage. And um, becoming really excited about what I'm seeing, uh, even in communities like Denver Community Church, where we're engaging things like love and kindness and justice in whole new ways yeah. in light of what's happening in society. And so Kessid um, our mission is to make counseling and wellness care affordable and accessible for everyone. Mm. And the way that we do that is pretty unique. We partner with businesses and churches that have unused space, and we turn that space into counseling and wellness sites. So we grow with and through community, and by that, we are able to um, be really mobile in getting this type of care to people. Um, something we also know is that healthcare is uh, <laughs> more in uh, the complexities on a societal level than it ever has been. And so something that I have kept seeing uh, in the mental health industry is how hard it is for people to find help yeah. that they can afford, whether or not they have insurance. And so Kessid offers our services at about half the market rate at the cash pay level. So we can get as close as we can to most co-pays that people would uh, engage, which allows folks to consider counseling when they are maybe navigating, huh, I, I feel like I'm not really thriving, rather yeah. than engaging counseling when it feels like their whole internal house is burning down. Yeah. <laughs> and so um, the heartbeat behind Kesset is kind of reimagining what it means to engage with our own mental health and wellness and what we as communities do to make that possible. We're two years old, and we have eight locations between Colorado Springs and North Denver, and um, we're projecting to get into uh, Boulder County and also into the mountains this next year. So I'm really, really excited to see how communities are engaging um, yeah. what it means to be human in this world and what it means to provide opportunities for our communities to transform. And you, you said right at the beginning, you talked about how there's a greater awareness of mental health that people are living with. What, what in your experience, what, why do you think that that's happening more and more, that people are more aware of the importance of mental health? You know, I, I think that there's a couple of answers that come to my mind. Um, I would say from a societal level, the, even the topic of mental illness or mental health stigma or... Um, 
unfortunately, uh, many of the suicides that we've even seen at the pub in the public um, figure realm mm -hmm. this year, um, mental health is coming up in dialogue yeah. um, more than it ever has before. And alongside that, I would say in faith spaces, um, you could call it kind of where we are theologically. If you follow Tillich at our 500 years, you yes. could call it... Um, where we notice that uh, churches are getting more and more engaged um, from orthodoxy to orthopraxy, um, the practice of faith rather than just the dogma of faith. And um, embedded within that is how we do relationships and how we engage our neighbor or our enemy. And then underneath that, very quickly, we start to have conversations around what feels healthy and unhealthy, mm -hmm. um, what it means to love, but also hold a sense of self, and all of the things around oppression or the marginalized and how I see churches becoming more aware of, of those kinds of topics. Mental health kind of naturally accompanies it as a friend. Um, yeah. And so in a way, I think people are just in a kind of awakening around how psychology really integrates on every level of how we um, are humans. Yeah, and, and for me growing up, going to a, see a therapist or a counselor or the, the a shrink, as they would say, <laughs> there was always a stigma attached to that of if you're going to see a therapist, that must mean there is something wrong with you. If you're going to see a counselor what issues do you have that you're not talking about? Uh, and, and you're seeing that also diminish too, the stigma behind that. Am I right in saying that? You know, it uh, depends on where you are. I, I don't know that I would see a diminishment, but I would say people are talking about mental illness more, which eventually that will transition, I think, to more discussions about wellness. Yeah. Um, but, you know, interestingly enough, I, I love the point that you made of people even call therapists shrinks because I, um, I've always loved that most is the term for what I do. <laughs> uh, I love when someone calls me a shrink. And some of it actually is connected to when you trace the etymology of that word, um, that word was ascribed to Amazonian tribes that were known at, from colonialists as head shrinkers. And, um, and so they're these people that have this mystery about them that um, also kind of hold, you know, when you start to peel back layers of indigenous tribes, you quickly see roles like medicine people. Yeah. Which if you think about a medicine person in a tribe, uh, whatever you think about that spiritually, from a psychology standpoint, they held the psychology of the tribe. They held mm. the psychology of their community. Yeah. And uh, the lines between where psychology began and spirituality began or ended, there, there was no intersection. It all was in relationship to each other. Yeah. And people would come to the medicine people when they had physical illness or spiritual illness or psychological illness. You know, we have those terms. But when often I notice people in the U.S. talk about psychology, they think of Freud. <laughs> yes. They think of this very young science that's only about 150 years old. And then uh, if, if I get to be just really transparent, a very patriarchal history based in a medical model. Yep. And that developed into things like the DSM, which is the diagnostic manual that therapists use when they prescribe things like you have post-traumatic stress disorder or depression or fill in the blank. And that is the conversation of mental illness. But when we think about psychology outside of that framework, psychology literally means the study of the soul. And no matter what you may believe about soul, it does contain this kind of immaterial, mysterious part of how we are in this universe. Yeah. And so I get really excited about recapturing the view of psychology from that lens of shrink. Yeah. <laughs> um, and even seeing how, you know, we as a society often even get health treatment once we're sick rather than engaging in community resources and providing ways to get community resources so that we can constantly engage our wellness. Yes. Um, which, yes. that was a rabbit trail, but there you go. Yeah, no, that's good. And you made the one comment, and I think this would be important for people listening, um, about people going to see a therapist when all hell has broken loose uh, and things are falling apart versus going early on uh, one of the things my wife and I have long said is we're not going to go see someone 
that we have to pay money to per hour when, and say to them, save our marriage. Hmm. Uh, we're not going to go when it's hanging on by a thread. But we will go, and we do go, um, for tune-ups when something's not right, when we can't put our finger on something. Um, because just like physical health, when you ignore those symptoms within, it, you, you just don't trend toward health uh, once, you, once you hear those. So, no, you, rabbit trail but a great rabbit trail. <laughs> well, I would, I would even love to respond to what you just said because I think it's actually a really important point. Um, after uh, the Parkland School shooting mm-hmm. this last year, um, I was invited to speak on Denver Conservative Talk Radio, which I thought was just the coolest invitation yeah. as a mental health ED. And um, I was handed uh, a Time magazine uh, about 10 minutes before I was supposed to go on the air, and the host, and I just love this, it was t- super improv-based, but he was like, I want you to read the article they just released on the Parkland School shooting, tell me your thoughts on it. Here's the article. <laughs> so I, <laughs> no pressure. I channeled my uh, speed reading skills from graduate school, and, uh, and the thing that I brought up on the show was um, the language we use around mental health in a way reinforces stigma right? Mm. So when we respond to things like school shootings, we make responses by wanting to make mental health care more accessible to students. But students have only known that this was coming because of this really bad thing that happened. Yeah. So if they were to engage these services, um, they may have to wrestle with, am I really, really, really not doing well to need this? Rather than we all actually need to have the tune-up, as you mentioned. We all need these resources. And how do we put them in communities so that it is normalized? Yes. Um, and thankfully, I see a lot of you know, exciting movements come from really devastating events, and I think we should celebrate that as well. But I think it is important to name, yeah, until we normalize it, that is simply part of... Uh, being with a partner long-term, that you will need someone outside of your marriage or partnership to come alongside you, and we celebrate that. That doesn't yeah. mean that you're bad or that you your marriage is on the rocks. Yep. That's huge. Yeah. Yeah. And you talked about how you see communities of faith beginning to, to move from orthodoxy to orthopraxy as one of the reasons, among many, that mental health is becoming um, less stigmatized more free to talk about. And I introduced you as entrepreneur. And so let's move from Kesed Wellness, which is that whole piece we just talked about, to something you've just launched called Future Church Consulting. What, what's that about? What, is, what does that uh, mean to you and what are you doing there? Uh, I am so excited about this new venture. So I am a co-founder of Future Church Consulting and our mission is to bring harmony to church revenue models. And what we mean by that is um, helping churches reimagine how they uh, build revenue and also uh, spread their operating budget. So the mental, or I'm sorry, not we're outside mental health. The (laughs) religious sector um, is actually on the whole, um, if you include churches and faith-based nonprofits, is a $1.2 trillion industry. Whoa. The majority of those resources that are build those operating budgets, over 80% of them, if not more, are inward facing, which means operating budgets help keep the lights on, help keep the inward facing um, engagement of the church um, going. And in a lot of ways, that's been throughout the history of the church. You gotta have a large space of gathering, right? right? You just have these things that have been part of tradition and just are. And even churches that can give up to 20%. I mean, that's unbelievable, churches that can engage local and international practices um, at that level. And yet, at the core of what it means to be church is love, right? which is all about community and relationship. And what we also see from a global economic standpoint, um, from just the business world, is we are moving towards an economy of equity and empathy, Mm -hmm. Um, I'm actually drawing that from a really interesting economics book called Abundance that I highly recommend. Um, But when I look at that, I'm like, well, those are super faith-based Christian values, equity and empathy. Um, What would it be if churches were able to diversify and transform and reimagine how 
they get money beyond passing the plate, for example, yep. and instead are doing social impact in the world and reimagining how they use their space. I mean, Kesset's whole business model came to my mind one day. It finally clicked when I was actually, and this is a true story, I was driving by a church on a Wednesday afternoon after I was coming home from my job, and the parking lot was empty. Yep. And the thing that I realized was I've grown up in church my whole life, and that's not an uncommon thing. The church is full when there's a Wednesday night Bible study or when there's Sunday church. But what is the space used for in the meantime? Yes. Um, and so that connected to how um, there's many <laughs> places in the world. Um, I think the northeast part of our country is a really good example where even traditional models of Sunday church don't work anymore. And yet people want this experience of what it is to be church more than ever before. So what would it be to go into places that are wanting to reimagine sacred rhythms while still carry a faith-based heartbeat of church, um, but maybe step outside of traditional structures of the rhythm of how that is? Yeah. Um, so our three touch points are business, um, sacred rhythms, and community, and figuring out ways to look at where the gaps are um, for churches and also where they could reimagine so that churches could also become more sustainable. Because I think the other thing that we're seeing is um, people are leaving the church Sunday rhythm, um, but people are more engaged in spirituality. Um, yes, 100%. And on top of that, um, people want to do things that are beautiful in the world. <laughs> and isn't the very heart of our message that God is love. Yes. Um, so what would it be to create that? Create, reimagine church, hence the name Future Church. Yeah, I love that. I've, I've long said that church buildings are the most poorly used facilities, second only to NFL stadiums. Oh, yeah, <laughs> we used absolutely. To live, we used to live a block from uh, Mile High Stadium, which is where the Broncos play. And, I mean, even when they went to the playoffs and with summertime concerts, it's like 18, 18 events per year. Mm -hmm. And so uh, when you think about a church building, you have Sundays, and depending whether or not your church meets between Christmas and New Year, which we don't, <laughs> uh, 51 times a year. But yeah, the number of hours it sits empty. Um, and when, when, when I came to Denver, our building that's just south of here, uh, Heather and I, by the way, are sitting in our uptown building right now as we record this. It's gorgeous. But our building just south of here, I was the only one in it. I was the only staff member. I started to get, like, I'm an introvert, but it was that's like 40 hours a week of introvert time. Oh, yeah. I started to lose my mind. Um, and so we finally, I ran into somebody, and they said, yeah, we're looking for a space for a nonprofit, and that's when it clicked. And I said, well, come use our space. And um, I upset some of the bookkeepers that were a part <laughs> of our congregation at that time because he said, how much? I was like, oh, no, it's free. Like, I need you to be there. And it kicked off. We began to realize we had so much space that our building down there is um, super functional as a community center. I love it. I walked in one night. I, had, I forgot something, and I drove from home to go into the building, grab something in my office, and some guy looked at me and was like, excuse me, can I help you? You didn't <laughs> and I was know like, you. That was so good. No, I was like, oh, no, I just have to run upstairs to get something. He's like, okay, does so-and-so know you're here? And I was like, I didn't even know who he was talking about. I said, I'm not sure. I said, I, I work here. And he's like, oh, okay, totally fine. That but is we hilarious. we have people all the time using our facilities. So again, so if you're listening and you're a part of a faith community and your building is boarded up Sunday at noon all the way through the following Sunday at 8 a.m., um, start emailing your pastors and create some vision around that. And have them call Heather Nelson at Future Church Consulting. <laughs> Absolutely. We are here to help. Yes, that is so great. I can't wait to see where that goes. But um, let's talk about uh, this summer. You So every summer... Um, I take time away, our staff takes time away, uh, and we don't have anyone on staff do the regular teaching, but you um, grace us with a sermon um, that, according to you, is a little bit last minute, uh, and I was not able to be here. My wife and kids and I were on vacation uh, when you spoke, and so a couple of weeks after we got home, after you preached, I came in, and the first thing Beth said was, you've got to listen to Heather Nelson's sermon, and I was like, yeah, I probably will. She's like, no. You have to listen to Heather's Nelson sermon. So, of course, I did, because when she 
is adamant about anything. <laughs> She's right. Listen. And um, I think well, you asked for feedback, and, and maybe I haven't even given it to you yet, but I really thought like it was so raw, um, incredibly authentic, and yet you were so composed in the middle of it. Um, and I had people, I had people without me soliciting anything, call me and be like, who was that? That was amazing. There wasn't a dry eye in the house. Um, and what you did was you hit on the idea of what connects us. And you did it from a place of your own vulnerability. And so can you just share a bit about that, about what, some of the principles of what you talked about? Because that's really what um, I think so many of us are longing for, is how do we connect, even with those um, that seem to be distant from us, the person that we love the least, people who've wounded us. Um, what does that kind of connection look like? You know, I am, um, you, you name there not being a dry eye on the house, um, including mine. I approach connection from the reality that we, we start to understand connection when we feel disconnected. Mm. Um, and I had a really unique experience that week uh, where I felt really disconnected from a relationship that's one of the most important ones to me in the entire universe. And up to that point, I had a sermon that I really did. I loved the principles of it. Um, but then, and uh, if, if you're curious about preaching, you may want to know something really, really important about the process is you often get to live your sermon. <laughs> uh, and boy, I... Um, yeah, about three days before preaching at DCC, I was in this place of going, um, can I call Michael and say I'm, I'm going to be sick? Uh, and <laughs> I wouldn't have picked up, by the way. I was on vacation. <laughs> Fair enough. Take it. Uh, no, I, I was feeling my humanity in it because I felt lost in um, how disconnected I felt from this relationship. And, um, and don't we all have that story in our family? or in our friendships, where we suddenly become aware that we don't belong, um, or we will be fired if, for example, you come out, um, mm -hmm. or uh, we believe differently, or we voted differently, and we're sitting over Thanksgiving, and um, that one family member says that one thing about the person they voted for, and you just can't take it. and. Um, and yet that seems to be the crux of our theology, uh, are those moments where there is an impasse and someone we love or potentially someone we don't love at all and we would call them an enemy um, hurts us or we hurt them or we get accused. And I often notice that's when we are invited to connect. Um, I use the story of uh, when Jesus told Peter, get behind me, Satan, uh, yes. as my illustration, partially because I just wanted to preach on that. I, <laughs> I just love that uh, part of scripture. And, and also because to me, um, that is so real. And it can be so easy sometimes to engage conversations like connection, and it feel very out there, right? And it feel kind of like this abstract concept um, that we don't, there's nothing really to latch onto, and yet it is completely inside of us at all times. Uh, we're all aware of the places and spaces where we don't feel like we belong. And back to our earlier conversation about when mental health often comes up, um, when we're really, really struggling, or when mental illness is the dialogue, um, I think when we feel a sense of disconnection, because I also believe that we can't get away from the fact that we are all actually interconnected. Yes. Um, and yet we live in such isolation. And so disconnection is actually where I see the need for mental health support begin. And who of us hasn't experienced a sense of that, no matter who we are? And so um, that's kind of the place that I, that I came from. You know, I, I asked the question at the beginning, is, is connection a fantasy church? 
Yeah. Um, there's been times in my life where I've engaged faith and, and the things that we talk about um, sound like a really, really great fairy tale. Mm. And I've gotten really interested um, in how we can take concepts like Micah 6.8 to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly and to say, um, where have we felt oppressed? Um, where have we started to realize our privilege has created a lot of blind spots? Um, how are we double conscious in the world? Um, how are we thinking of other as much as we're considering ourselves? And for some of us, perhaps, how are we considering ourselves for the first time so that we can actually love other? Um, I don't know where psychology or theology begins and ends in that. And so yeah. in some ways, I was trying to take this concept of connection and make it my story and share a story as a way of saying it's all of our stories. Yeah. And it means everything about our faith. Yes. And you made an interesting statement there. I want to I, I hear more about it. You said we become aware of connection when we feel disconnected. Help me, help me understand that more. I would love to have some of my so, social justice friends in the room because I think they could speak to it much better <sighs> than I could. Um, but um, I think a gift of privilege, um, for example, can be you're always in, right? Yep. Um, you don't know the automatic doors that you have in life. Um, I, I didn't realize how much I hadn't engaged conversations like social justice um, in regards to race in our, in our nation until I had come out and I realized what it felt like to have my livelihood stripped of me when I left my job at the church. Yeah. And... Um, to me, those are the moments where you suddenly realize that when someone calls you, and for me, for example, I um, had a career in, in the evangelical church world um, when I was young and outside of seminary, and when I decided to come out, I left that role. And in a lot of ways, I felt like I surrendered my entire resume. Yeah. <laughs> you know, that was really nice paid a lot of money. <laughs> and um, and I, I had no idea where I was going to head next. And, and I think those are the experiences where when that one friend calls you and says, you know, hey, Heather, I have this idea for, for a company, and I'm wondering if you would be an equity partner. Um, because they believed in me. And then when I came back uh, to Denver, I had moved away for a short time after that. I came back to Denver and, and I started Kessid, but I really thought I was just gonna be you know, an entrepreneur and in the mental health world and, and then spend all my mornings writing and thinking and processing theology and the things that always gave me life and why I even went to seminary in the first place. Yeah. And then I started getting invitations from places like DCC to come speak. And um, if you would have told me that as the Heather that had just left my job in a church, I would have told you you're crazy. And yet I continue to be amazed that when we gain more self-awareness and when we gain more other awareness, that it transforms our lives yeah. and calls us back to the fact that... Um, Loving one another, being thoughtful, kind toward one another, being intentional and aware of the other's experience and passions and wounds makes truly all the difference in yeah. society. Yeah. Um, yeah. Just looking at somebody and saying, like, your story matters. Your story is valid. Um, I had the privilege today at lunch, actually, of being able to say to somebody, like, hey, thank you. Thank you for sharing that with me. Hmm. Um, like when people just give give pieces of themselves, I think you're right. So often we just assume, well, yeah, that's normal, or I deserve that, or you should ask me. Especially, I, mean, I think about my role and uh, as a pastor and what people trust me with. Um, yeah, I pray I never lose the weight and the glory of that. That somebody actually will sit with me and tell me about an addiction, 
Um, and I'll say, like, who, who else knows? Well, you're the first one I've told. Of. Like, yeah, it, it's unbelievable. Un- oh, I really appreciate that insight. Um, when you talk about connection, uh, especially in the work you do, what, what do you see as barriers for people when it comes to connection? Um, whether it's connecting, for, I would say, first with themselves, um, but also connecting with the other and connecting with someone that is really, quote, the other. Um, what are some of the barriers? What are some of the things that you, you see stand in the way of people finding connection? Perception and pain. Um, mm. I would say that those are the two kind of umbrella ideas. And so much of it is perception. You know, I, um, I grew up with a belief that I was bad, for example. So I perceived myself as there was something wrong that needed to be fixed. And where did that come from? I would say uh, that duly came from my faith context mm-hmm. um, and background and also from um, society as it related to being a queer woman in yeah. the world. I didn't have words for that when I was then, uh, when I was that young, but I, uh, I would give it those words now. There was just this general awareness in me. Um, mm. I'm also an Enneagram 4, so that can be really core <laughs> to, to that whole conversation, but uh, I, uh, yeah, I, I had this self-perception, and so I um, got reparative therapy. You know, I went to counseling. I, I pursued these things because of this underlying belief, and when it was some mentors in my life that um, help me talk through my understanding of where that was coming from and be invited to new understandings about who I am and um, the beauty of that. I would say I had this whole new connection to myself. Mm. I had this whole new invitation. Um, I I said in my very first sermon I ever preached, um, I I opened by saying, um, this is my very first time preaching, but don't worry. I've been practicing for this day since I was two years old. Uh Um, Which is true. I would grab my mom's nightstand as my pulpit. And um, granted, I I grew up in um, uh, a family where my grandfather is a very well-known preacher. And uh, that was a constant rhythm of my life, but there was something, I think, just deep in my gut that was just very pure as a child, and um, that I was connected to, if we use that language, and then I got very disconnected from that Mm. for a long, long time, and only recently, in the last couple years, through these invitations and these these new ways of engaging and loving myself and inviting opportunities, I suddenly am reconnected, if you will, to perhaps I am a speaker in yeah. this world. So, so I think self, go ahead. I was going to say, so your, your perception of yourself in some ways has shifted back to what it, the true self that came into this world. goes <laughs> back to that, like that two-year-old behind your mom's nightstand. That's you. And then you layered stuff on between then and now. Would that be a fair way of saying it? I think that could be a fair way of saying it, which goes into the, just the wisdom of our, our childhood. But I also yeah. think that could be one story of child to adult that could also be a representation of many stories of even how in our own day-to-day lives we carry around shame yes, or we carry around uh, blame mm-hmm. <laughs> or we carry around grief and we feel like, you know, we're on autopilot. I think that's another way of saying we feel disconnected from self. And then where I really think we see perception play out is disconnection with other, Mm -hmm. which is where I think um, that comes into moments where you and I have experience and I walk away from it feeling hurt because I perceive something that you said to be hurtful. Yes. And I filled that gap between us with that story that probably assumes the worst. Yep. Right? Of me and you, potentially. And isn't that our relationships when it comes to uh, those we're closest to, as well as those we perceive to be on the other side of that political party or the other side of that uh, faith perspective or denomination? And what would it mean to uh, transcend where we disagree or transcend what we represent 
and connect mm -hmm. because you are a human and I am a human. And so I think perception of other breaks down when we really start to objectify the other. Yes. I've been very well acquainted with this where I've known for many years in my life that if somebody knew I was gay, for example, I am suddenly shrouded under this whole umbrella that Heather and human are far lost beyond Heather is gay. Yeah. Right? I think that's an example where we become what we represent rather than remembering there's a human on the other side of that representation, however that person identifies, which I think is the unique gift even of um, when you do experience uh, an awareness of connection because you feel disconnected from a tribe, for example, when you then get to be the person that reconnects with someone who feels disconnected. Yeah. And I think the difficulty in that invitation is when it calls us back to places like our family. Mm -hmm. um, that can be the hardest one and the most real. Um, so, so perception. And then the second one is pain. I, I don't want to negate that there's stories in each of our lives where someone simply hurt us. Um, abuse, trauma, you know, um, and then also, I just don't like you. <laughs> yes. Or um, my ego is getting in the way. Or um, I'm scared, and so I will leave you. And what do we do with that pain? You know, do we deny it? Do we repress it? Do we lash back? <laughs> um, which would all be fight, flight, freeze responses yes. if you go the mental health realm. Or do we transcend our lizard brain and return to... How do, I, how do I give this grace? What does yeah. that actually mean? How do I love? Yeah. Um, and it doesn't mean be, I become a doormat, and it also doesn't mean becoming the oppressor. There's yeah. invitation and connection yeah. at the core of that. And there's something important there that you, when you said it, it felt like naming what love is. Because people, I, I've said to people, you know, this idea that the greatest invitation that we hear from Jesus is to love and oh well, and it's people hear this love as like this airy, kind of light, fluffy thing. Um, and yet love is is fierce. Uh, love allows violence to fall first upon itself before anyone else, as we see evidenced in the cross. Um, but I think the thing that's often missed is, and you were just talking about like when you love somebody and you get hurt, that like love is a huge risk. It's a massive risk. It's like when uh, Robert Capon talks about when the, when the prodigal son comes home and he's like, you know there had to be some sort of conversation at the party with the father. Like, you didn't even ask him why he came home. You know he's probably gonna run away again. Mm -hmm. You know that he's probably going to completely and totally disrespect you in front of the entire town. You, on and on and on. And he said, and the father would say, yes which means that when he comes home again, I get to run down the road. Hmm. Um, and I think it's important for us to think about that love is hard. It's incredibly difficult, terrifying, risky. Um, but but there, so there, it does lead to pain. It does, or I should say, it can lead to pain. Um, and I think that's a really important thing for people to remember, that it's not, what you're talking about isn't some fluffy ideal of, Everyone's singing kumbaya, so to speak. Absolutely not. Yeah. And don't we constantly avoid it? Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Yeah, when you, one of the things when I ask you the question about what keeps us from connecting, I find that when I hurt somebody I love, I have the hardest time reconnecting because it involves me saying I was wrong. Uh, it involves me holding their pain that I've caused. Um, and it is. It's hard. It's not... It's glorious in its, in its beauty and it's agonizing in its rupture, you know? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, when, when, you, when you think about this idea of connection uh, that we've been talking about, um, and I've already named a couple of things, we talk a lot about next steps, first steps on this podcast, and you think about connecting to the other. That might be a family member. That might be uh, somebody who's wounded us. might be a coworker. What are some really practical, uh, tangible steps that you've seen people take that open them up to connection and in, in 
cr- begin to create greater connection both to themselves and to the other. Absolutely. You know, I am um, going to first start with a story to answer that question. Um, the sermon that you referenced earlier at DCC was about a worst case scenario for me where um, I extended my arm towards connection and it backfired. Mm. And that kind of goes back to your, your point about love, love invites suffering. Um, in fact, I uh, um, heard the quote that love um, is choosing how we suffer. Wow. Um, who's that philosopher that's good friends with Rob Bell? Uh, Ken Wilber? The author that wrote Insurrection. Oh, Pete Rollins. Pete Rollins. Peter Rollins, He said yeah. that. I can't remember which book. Um, and I may be butchering it, but that's love's essentially choosing how you suffer. And mm. I really resonate with that. Um, but when I was, after I preached, navigating my realities relationally um, with this whole situation, one of my mentors, um, Mark Tid at Highlands Church, got together and he invited me to hold off on forgiveness until I um, really understood the debts there. And I was really blown away because I've heard my whole life about forgiving. Mm -hmm. I've never heard a pastor inviting me to first make sure that I'm aware of what, what happened. Um, and I would actually invite that that is the first courageous step. If you let yourself name how you were hurt and potentially let yourself name how you hurt Mm. or the stories that you made up or how you maybe filled that space thinking the worst. Yeah. Um, slowing yourself down enough to do that so that when you actually forgive, you are forgiving. Mm. Um, Archbishop Desmond Tutu talked about that with the Truth and Reconciliation Committee, um, that there was the big question, why in South Africa did people have to sit and listen to all of the atrocities committed uh, under, uh, be, with apartheid, through apartheid? And it was, until the truth is spoken, there can be no forgiveness. Wow. Absolutely. Oh, that Mark Tid. He's something else. He is something else. <laughs> um, that is that fantastic. Hero of the faith. I, um, I'm actually rereading uh, The Book of Joy by the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu um, and written by Abrams, which I just love. A Jew, a Buddhist, and a, and a Christian. Uh, <laughs> and uh, de- in that book, Desmond Tutu talks a lot about um, our humanity and... Uh, And I think that's actually the next key is remembering that the other or that yourself is human. And when I what I say by that is that we're not objects. Yeah. We we aren't just what we represent. We aren't just our pain. (laughs) We are more than that. So you know, for me, I um I even remember when I came out as gay. um, There was a season in my life where I was kind of like, and I'm more than that. (laughs) Yeah. Um, and then I went through this phase that I actually share was harder for me uh, in my story um, to come out as being a speaker or even a preacher in the world. Um, and then being able to step back from that and go, but I don't really want to pastor a church. That doesn't feel resonant with me. Yeah. So what does it mean to name parts of who we are, but remember there's so much humanity underneath that. And then what if we assume the best rather than the worst? So... Um, if we begin with that person is bad and they're trying to hurt me, they're trying to abandon me, they're trying to control me, yeah. it leaves very little room for um, other possibilities. But if we first enter that and go, okay, slow down. I know my mom loves me. I know she does. And maybe she loves me in all the ways that don't resonate with me. Mm. But if I can hold space to slow down enough and say, I'm going to assume the best. Suddenly they become human and so much more than that pain or the ways you disagree. And I think even from a faith standpoint, we are being invited into a new understanding that maybe what connects us is an agreement. Yeah. <laughs> because in fact, even with my closest friends, when we get to know each other well enough, we find somewhere we disagree. But actually what connects us is what transcends that disagreement and calls us back to love and 
remembering all the beauty there is in one another and that we all want to fill that gap with love and we miss it. Yeah. And we miss it for a number of reasons. Yeah. And what is, we start off talking about mental health. Uh, what, what role do you see connection playing or a lack of connection? What impact, direct impact, do you see that having on someone's emotional and spiritual health? And that's a huge question. <laughs> you know, my but. response is actually, where do you not? Um, <laughs> back to that, the Book of Joy uh, by De the Dalai Lama and Desmond Tutu, uh, they identify um, pillars of uh, the heart is what they call them. Um, I think there's four pillars of the heart and four pillars of the mind as it relates to joy. Yeah. And they flesh out their story by connecting it to their own story and even the story of their friendship. And um, they connect it to science. So, like, for example, they share about this study that for children who um, don't experience an attachment with their mother, that literally can affect their spinal cord development and the uh, maturity of the nerves as they extend out. And if you want to know more about that study, then read the book, because I'm going to butcher it from here. <laughs> but that, that, that there is physiological implications around how we attach. Um, we see it in things like failure to thrive, but those are extreme examples. Yeah. And um, what they invite is, in my opinion, this invitation back to even things that mystics and Celtic theologians really get. I just finished John Philip Newell's book, The New Harmony. I'm reading it. I love it. And I mentioned it on the first podcast of season two. Brilliant. Because you told me to read it. I did. Oh, I'm so glad. <laughs> oh, it's so, so good. good. And he talks a lot about, um, well, I think he begins by talking about how cosmos means the harmony of parts. Mm -hmm. And in this invitation back to our oneness, which is also this call to things like tikkun ulam, you know, in Hebrew, which is repairer of the world, that we really do leave a wake in how we live in love. Mm-hmm. Um, even down to the, our carbon footprint. You know, how we engage thoughtfully makes a difference in our relationships. And I would actually say the division between how it affects us spiritually or emotionally is no different than how it affects us physically. Just think about how stress affects the body. Mm -hmm. um, we are learning more and more how sleep affects the body. Um, how can we potentially consider um, our daily depression affecting our body or the resentment that we have towards that sibling yeah. affecting our heart rate. Um, much more our bitterness or the way that we engage our belief of God as distant or close or good or bad. All that stuff. Oh, that's so fascinating. What's the name of the book by the Dalai Lama? and The Book of Joy. Bishop? The bo Book of Joy. Okay, you're one for one on book recommendations right on to me. check it out so i'm gonna go with that one we'll see if you're two for two uh and if you're listening you should probably get that book because the new harmony was out of this world um so you are going to be back at dcc in a uh let's see a few weeks october 19 and you're hosting an event here in denver um tell us a bit about the event what what that's about and what you're doing I'm so excited. So Kesed, the mental health and wellness nonprofit we talked about at the beginning, uh, we're having our fall event, and the cost of a ticket covers a counseling session at Kesed. So it's a really cool way to support a nonprofit while having a fun live experience. Um, we are bringing Jennifer Knapp for the music portion of the nice. event, and then um, uh, state representative Leslie Herod, who is uh, the first gay African-American person to be elected state representative in Colorado, is joining us. And um, the CEO of Interfaith Alliance, um, Amanda Henderson, Amanda will be Henderson, there. Yes. And we will, may have one more speaker, so we'll keep that person um, a TBD for now and, and to be excited <laughs> about. But we are um, excited to host a conversation where we're actually going to be talking about what connects us from a group of people who have um, a diverse set of voices. We're also going to have um, a live painter come and do a mural. He's a muralist in Denver um, as a way of capturing the active nature and the artistic aspects of connection. So it's going to be kind of this cool curated event for people to gather and hear and enjoy and have some entertainment and support mental health and wellness. Yeah. While they're doing it. So that's here in Denver. Where can people find tickets to that? Because you have the... 
standard ticket than you have a VIP ticket, too, I, right? We do. Yeah. We sure do. So you can find uh, those tickets on Kesed's website. Uh, Kesed is spelled K-H-E-S-E-D. So it's kesedwellness.com slash tickets is okay. where people can find that. Perfect. And for people listening who are not in Denver, um, you mentioned Kesed is a, is a nonprofit, and that $60 goes towards providing one hour of uh, mental health and wellness to an individual who um, sees one of your clinicians, one of your therapists. If somebody wanted to give toward Kesed, how can they do that? Or can they do that? Absolutely. Our website has a clear portal to donations um, for one-time or monthly donations. And we also are um, speaking to this event as an invitation for people to um, stand in solidarity with this invitation for us to connect beyond what we represent or beyond what may divide us. Yeah. And um, this invitation is for all of us. And so what if, it, what if we lived by what we are talking about here today? So if you believe in mental health and you believe in this idea of connection, this is a way that you can support um, yeah. and, and stand in solidarity and advocacy with it. Yeah. And so if you're listening, I hope... Uh, especially if you know someone or maybe you yourself have benefited from therapy, counseling, from mental health. If you're in Denver, for sure, join us. Uh, it'll be at Denver Community Church's Uptown Building. Uh, you can Google Denver Church, where the first, uh, first result, or denverchurch.org to get the address. But I would highly suggest you coming. And if you're listening and you're not in Denver, uh, buy tickets for your Denver friends or... <laughs> Uh, go to kessedwellness.com and you can make a donation there. Um, I know you're online. Um, so how can our listeners learn more about your work? Where, where can they find you? So you can learn about Kessed at that website. Um, I also have a website, heatherlundy.org. Lundy is my middle name and it's spelled L-U-N-D-Y. Um, so people can find out more about the several companies I've started. Um, I also just adore speaking or preaching. Um, I was just about to ask you that. Oh, wonderful. Yeah, ask. if someone wants to have you preach. Please, invite me. Yes. <laughs> yes. Where and, and how does that happen? How can they make that happen? Go to heatherlundy.org? Yeah, heatherlundy.org. Okay. There's a slash contact. Um, you can see very easily there's a portal to contact me. Um, and I, I welcome speaking invitations. I think we have more exciting things to speak about in our faith than ever before. Yes. And I get excited of being part of that. Yes. Well, you are a part of it. And I would say uh, in many ways, in the context that we both share here in the city of Denver, you're, you're leading, you're encouraging, and you're doing it with a huge amount of grace and humility. So thanks for that. Um, it's, it's, it's a privilege to call you friend. You too, so, my friend. This has been a blast. Thank yeah. you. Well, thank you for being on the Changing Faith podcast. Uh, and I, I hope that the event goes incredibly well. I know that uh, I will be in attendance. Um, I'm excited to see the way things go. So uh, as for all of you who've joined with us uh, to participate in this conversation, I do hope as we consider to think, of, continue to think about connecting um, that maybe you have one part of yourself, maybe you have one person in your life uh, and you've, you've been challenged and encouraged just to think about one step you can take uh, toward greater connection, toward greater holistic health um, that will not only serve you, but will serve our world well. So again, thank you for joining us on the Changing Faith podcast. And until next time, as always, much love and peace be with you. <laughs>